Welcome, everyone, to the Battle of Gettysburg podcast. I am your co-host, Eric Lindblade, and as always, I am joined by my co-host, Jim Hessler. Jim, what's tonight's topic? Hey, Eric, and welcome back to the studio, by the way. Uh, thanks, everybody, for tuning back in. Tonight's topic is going to be Bad Gettysburg History Part 2. Uh, as you may recall, on our last installment of Bad Gettysburg History Part 1, we basically took what we consider to be bad history up through the close of July 2nd. But we felt that July 3rd had so much potentially bad history that it warranted its own episode. So that's what we're going to do today. Bad history, part two, focusing on July 3rd at Gettysburg. And beyond. And beyond, yes. We'll go beyond July 3rd. Well, once again, we are playing a home game. We are back in the home studio at Getty's Gear. Our friends at Getty's Gear have opened up the hub to us, and that's where we're recording tonight. So welcome back to Getty's Gear. And we were hoping to have uh, superfan mm -hmm. Jody from Savage here with us, but of course, Life Calls. Uh, she is doing some great work today, actually out over at the World War II Experience here in Gettysburg. And we do have some exciting events coming up with them, and I believe we're actually going to be out there recording uh, coming up, hopefully in the future, to do some some World War II themed episodes. Even yeah, Jody certainly is developing her own following as as she well deserves. So it's too bad she couldn't be here today. They're having one of their tank talks at the uh, American Experience World War II Museum. But as you mentioned, Eric, in addition to recording out there, of course, we're going to have our seminar out there in um, uh, early February of 2023. And for more information on that, just certainly check out our social media. Um, we have all that information on where you can sign up there. So um, we have not only the World War II Symposium we're doing, but we also have, I believe, an event with our friends over at the Seminary Ridge Museum coming up in March as well. Yes, we do. Another, We're going to do our second year in a row. This will be another Seminary Ridge Symposium. Jim. Eric, good friend Stu Dempsey from the seminary itself, Pete and Cody. And for the 2023 symposium, we're going to collectively focus on the days and the events leading up to the Battle of Gettysburg. So I think that's going to be pretty cool, and I'm looking forward to it. History deep dives, Eric, the way we do it. And I know, Jim, you get this, and I get it too. You know, we're out mm -hmm. in town. People go, hey, are you guys still doing that podcast thing? And yes, we are, as the symposiums are showing. And also, Jim, you have, I think, some very exciting news about something we have added to the repertoire, if you will. Yeah, you know, as many people know, we've resisted kind of doing videos and YouTube and all of that stuff. Look, we've said many times, myself, Eric, and Jody as well, we work for a living. We are not full-time podcasters, but we kind of resisted everything that goes along with doing videos. Over the holidays, though, I realized, you know, YouTube is supposed to be the number two search engine in the world right now. And when you combine that with the number of fans and listeners who have said in the past, when are you guys going to get on YouTube? I finally bit the bullet. I created the Battle of Gettysburg YouTube channel. And what I've been doing over the last, oh, I don't know, six to eight weeks or so is basically three things we're going to put on the channel. I am converting all of our audio 
podcasts from the archives into video files. So you get the same great podcast that you had before. Now with video content added, maps and photos to kind of help you follow along with who and what we're talking about. Also doing an on the field series where we'll record videos on the field, put those on the channel. We've already got a couple of those up and running. And then last but not least, also linking up to videos and appearances we have made for other people, whether it be other roundtables, Zoom to Gettysburg at 763, our friends at Addressing Gettysburg, History Underground, places we've appeared, I've linked that up. So I think we're going to have a lot of cool videos. Check it out. It's the Battle of Gettysburg podcast on YouTube. Like everything else we do, it's free. So if you could just click subscribe so we can help build the page. And, you know, it's it's the next step in our evolution. And what this is, is, as Jim said, you know, we have a lot of commitments outside of the show. It doesn't mean that we don't take the show seriously. It's just we have commitments outside of it at times. But what this does, it kind of fills some gaps when maybe we might not have episodes coming out as much. It's still content, as much as I hate that word. But <laughs> it, it it is, if you want all things great Gettysburg history, we're putting it out there for you. So some things that you might not have seen before and some things that go even kind of beyond the show as well. So we hope you check it out. I am pretty excited about it. I know Jim is. And so we hope that you'll check that out. And also it's a reminder, uh, you know, feel free to follow us, like us, write reviews for us on podcast platform of your choice. So before we get into part two of bad history jim what's kind of some of the feedback you've gotten from part one of bad history well you know eric and this goes back to what you said a minute ago because i get the same thing when i go into town hey do you still do that little podcast of yours the social media interaction we get from people has never been stronger so yeah there's still a lot going on out there and my point is we got a lot of feedback on part one. Uh, at times, it was even a little contentious, mm-hmm. which was which was fun. Um, I think most people agreed with the topics we took. There were, though, some folks who thought we should have come down harder on unlicensed guiding and ghost tours. And you know, let's, tack- let's tackle mm-hmm. unlicensed guiding first. If you're new to the show or if you don't know it, Eric and I are licensed battlefield guides at Gettysburg. Not going to be ashamed of that. Mm-hmm. Not going to hide that. You know, can licensed guides do their own podcast? Yes. Yes, we can. And we are. So, you know, we've many times over the years come down on unlicensed guiding. Eric, I know you have some mm-hmm. strong thoughts on that. But at the end of the day, this is a history podcast. It's not a current events podcast. Right. It's not a park news podcast. It's not a, hey, what's going on in mm-hmm. town podcast. And we we kind of felt like unlicensed guiding and really ghost guiding, too. They don't fall so much into the category of bad history as they do bad storytelling. And we just didn't really feel like this was the place for that. Right. And and as we've said, we are not a current events podcast we're not the podcast to find out what's the best ice cream or the best pizza in town that's not what we do we are historians this is a history podcast and and really if you're that adamant and that upset with with unlicensed guiding here at Gettysburg my recommendation contact the park let them know how much it makes you upset to see that that will get a lot more impact that'll be more impactful of your actions than us coming down on a rant for 20 minutes As, as fun as it would be I just don't really see the need for it do we bite the bullet? You know, we said in 
season one, episode one, we didn't want to be a current events podcast and we've we've stuck to that. Do we bite the bullet someday and just do the current events episode? Where is Eric's favorite pizza? I know everybody wants to know that. Do we just bite the bullet and do that? Not in Gettysburg. <laughs> uh, but no, I maybe, maybe, I don't know. I, I will just say I... I am a lot more fond of Gettysburg in 1863 than I am of Gettysburg in 2020. Yeah, right. Maybe we'll just leave it at that. Sure, sure, sure. And and again, we should, because somebody's going to listen and go, ooh, and take notes here. We're not mocking anybody who does that no. stuff. Some of that stuff is fun to listen to. Some of our friends do it. All we're saying, and this goes back to why didn't you come down harder on ghost tours type of stuff. We're a history podcast. That's who we are. That's what we do. That's what we're sticking to. If ghost tours go into the national park, we have as much of a problem with that as anybody. But if they're in the town, it's entertainment to me. It's not history. If somebody wants to believe in ghost tours or ghost stories, frankly, that's none of my business. Yeah, so we just kind of wanted to clear a few of those things up. It wasn't that we were just kind of ignoring you Mm -hmm. or didn't think what you felt was important. It's just it's kind of out of the purview of what we do. And, and so, but we did, I think overall, we had a lot of good feedback. I think, you know, we went to our listeners beforehand mm-hmm. and just kind of said, Hey, what are some things that you were, you were interested in? What's some of your favorite bad history? And, and they gave us some great ideas that I think kind of drove the, the, the narrative of the show a little bit. Mm-hmm. And um, so, and also, you know, we all know bad history in and of itself can sometimes be a tough subject when you're coming down. So, you know, um, one person thought I sounded particularly angry. Oh, you? Yeah, eh, maybe I was, who knows. But I, uh, you know, but all all in all we appreciate the feedback, we appreciate the effort that that you the super fans went into in helping kind of shape that episode. And we're going to be following it up here with even more bad history because if there is one thing Gettysburg has an abundance of, it sure. it's bad history. You know, I'll just on the anger topic we also heard on social media, too, from a gentleman, and I, I, I apologize, I forget who it was, that actually keeps track of when my jimmies get rustled, how often, what time, what episode, and what the topic was. And I'm going to break kayfabe a little bit here in the episode. A lot of this stuff doesn't really rustle my jimmies, <laughs> you know, kind of thing. But again, it's I appreciate the enthusiasm right. of somebody who would go to the trouble of keeping track of that. I have no idea if the person meant that as a compliment or an insult, but you know, again, most of this stuff, we started this podcast to have fun. Yeah. Doggone it. Are you still having fun? I am still having fun. I am enjoying talking about these topics and I think doing what we do probably, I think better than anybody else in the world. And that is the analysis and deep dives that we do on the battle of Gettysburg that you're not going to find anywhere else but this show. So with that, I think let's segue into July 3rd. And and one of the problems that we have when we look at July 3rd, because in many ways, I mean, is that a day that might, in terms of just per capita, <laughs> is maybe July 3rd the day that has the, the most quote-unquote bad history associated with it? So as we deal with it, I thought, let's just maybe kind of head around the field. Yeah, And I think that's maybe kind of the best way to start. So, of course, if you're looking at the actions on July 3rd, we really start to kind of look at things picking up. Obviously, the fight on July 2nd has ended. Both generals, Robert E. Lee and George Meade, are looking to continue uh, here with the battle. So let's pick things up early July 3rd. Jim, where do you want to start? 
Yeah. Well, you know, and I think this is a great point. First of all, I think the number one piece of bad history that, in my opinion, goes with July 3rd is the opinion that so many people have that July 3rd is kind of an anticlimactic, you know, fata accompli. I have no idea if I just said that phrase correctly. But, you know, people have this idea that July 3rd is, you know, anticlimactic. The second day was the turning point. July 3rd is just Lee, you know, throwing things at the wall to try to see what sticks. That's bad history. There's a lot of stuff going on all over the field on July 3rd. And at least in the mind of Robert E. Lee, due to those partial successes on the second day, July 3rd is very much in the balance. So maybe we start with the morning fighting over a cult sale. Yeah, my, my sense with Lee going into July 3rd is this is not a desperate mm-hmm. commander. This is very much a commander that I think is looking to finish off what he has not done the last two days. And I think there's a tendency when we look at these events, we know how they're going to end. We know kind of the progression of events that day. Robert E. Lee at 3 a.m. on July 3rd did not know Pickett's charge was going to happen. Right. So we have to kind of keep that in mind as we look at that progression. So what we certainly know, and I think the best way to start July 3rd, speaking of Robert E. Lee, is, of course, his famous uh, quote in his official report on the battle that, in his words, July 3rd, the general plan of battle was unchanged. So, Jim, what did Robert E. Lee mean when he said the general plan of battle was unchanged? Yeah, and I think the way most of us have interpreted that was that initially he was going to renew attacks once again on the flanks. What's key to remember on the morning of July 3rd that was different on July 2nd, Ewell has been reinforced overnight on the far Confederate left. And so the reinforcing of Ewell would seem to suggest that Lee realizes there is an opportunity there. Mm -hmm. You know, they've gained a foothold at the bottom of Culp's Hill, but with more reinforcements, more troops, they can possibly carry that position. So, you know, that's step one. Step two is, again, if you're going to renew and coordinate attacks on the flanks, presumably then Longstreet is going to hit the Union left at the same time. And again, I think this level of coordination between Ewell and Longstreet, which was clearly not there on July 2nd, is the key, one of the keys to understanding why Lee thinks it could work on the um, third. So I know I did, I'd said a few moments ago, you know, that we should start at Culp's Hill, but how about while I'm thinking of it, bad history and such, let's talk about Longstreet, you know, and his, his attempt to potentially go around the round tops instead. You know, I know, when we have people on the battlefield, we see people on social media who immediately say, well, Lee should have listened to Longstreet. If Lee had listened to Longstreet, it would have turned out so differently. Eric, bad history. If Longstreet goes around the round tops, is he unobstructed or do we have Union troops there? Well, it's it's tough to say with any what if, because we never know how it will turn out. Potentially Longstreet making that movement, could it have been advantageous to the Confederacy? Sure. But the reality is there's a lot of Union troops out Mm -hmm. there. The Union Sixth Corps has arrived on the battlefield. So trying to move around, well, we could be maybe talking about a bloody repulse up the Tawny Town Road on what is today more or less right Howe Avenue behind Big and Little Roundtop. So we don't know. What we do know, though, is it's very clear that what Robert E. Lee is looking for on July 3rd is a coordinated assault 
on each flank, starting earlier in the day. And one area that Lee will gain on July 2nd that I think makes him believe that these attacks could be successful is the fact that he now occupies the Peach Orchard. And the Emmitsburg Grove. So he now has gained ground. Lee, from his mind, has battered this Union Army for the last two days. I think it's very easy to, in that moment, see why Lee thinks he's in the advantageous position that he is. I don't think Lee feels like he's the underdog on July 3rd. No, and that's a great point. And so, you know, another component here of bad history is you will see some historians say to the effect of, well, if Lee couldn't if Lee couldn't carry the field on July 2nd, why does he expect to carry the field on July 3rd with what is presumably a more battered army? And we've just hit on some of the reasons why. The foothold at the bottom of Colts Hill, Lee's gaining of the Peach Orchard and the Emmitsburg Road are two changes in position that in Lee's mind can potentially lead to success on July 3rd. Now, as we said a few moments ago, we know the outcome. We know it didn't happen. We know the Peach Orchard Emmitsburg Road did not lead to success for Lee. But the idea that Lee is somehow feeling defeated, you know, he's off his rocker. Mm -hmm. I love the movie Gettysburg, as you know. I love the July 3rd morning planning scenes in that movie. But, you know, the idea that this mystical music is playing and Lee is kind of off his rocker is he just says, you know, in the center, they will break kind of thing. Totally unrealistic to what actually happened. It's much more complicated. And in Lee's mind, there is a chance of success. Bad history if you think otherwise. And I think also as we look at Lee... Think about what Lee's experience just a few months before the Battle of Chancellorsville was. Obviously, you have had this smashing success late in the evening of May 2nd, but really the heaviest fighting, the bloodiest fighting of the Battle of Chancellorsville is May 3rd. Mm -hmm. It takes time to dislodge Union troops. What Lee has experienced is, you know what, if I land a good haymaker, I can wear them down. Mm -hmm. Our resolve is stronger than that of our opponent. And so I think for Lee, would he have liked to have had this battle wrapped up on July 2nd? By all means. But as a pragmatic, experienced military commander that Lee is, he understands that, well, plans change. Yeah, yeah. And, And so what I think we are looking at is Lee wanting to build on the gains that he has had on July 2nd. Obviously, the Peach Orchard, the Emmitsburg Road, reinforce Richard Yule, along the Culp's Hill section of the line and hoping that all of those almosts that you see on July 2nd, the Confederates almost capture Culp's Hill, almost capture Cemetery Hill, Cemetery Ridge and Little Round Top. Maybe if this thing is put together a little bit better and starts earlier in the day, it's not unnatural to think that potentially you could get the result you want. Yeah. Now, when Britt and I did the Peach Orchard book, And in that book, we literally segued into July 3rd and how the Confederate successes of July 2nd led into Lee's thinking of July 3rd. I know we were critiqued Mm -hmm. by at least one prominent historian who said, no, that's not true. And I'm sorry, no, that historian is wrong. Mm -hmm. Lee says it in his report, the ground gained by Longstreet encouraged us to continue the attack. I mean, Lee says it, and not only does he say it, but the actions indicate it. So, yeah, I think we've covered this. Hopefully, we've covered it to satisfaction. It is not an anticlimactic day. It is not some suicidal attempt by Lee. And in Lee's mind, success can be gained 
with some of the ground that has been gained and with proper concert of action. And something that I think sometimes I see people get into when they try to analyze the decisions of these generals is there is a tendency to, as we look at how they're making their decisions, to just go, well, we know there's no chance. Mm -hmm. Well, that doesn't really matter at that moment. And, and I think from track record, from what Lee has experienced here in the field and on other battlefields, Lee has reason to be confident. And, and so what we're going to see is that I think early morning of July 3rd, Lee is expecting more or less an attack against each flank of the Union Army with maybe even a push against the center if things go the way he wants, happening sooner than later. And of course, we know that Longstreet will not deliver that attack on July 3rd. I almost feel that's almost kind of its own animal in and of itself with Longstreet and why he comes to the decisions he does there. Not so much in in the sense of bad history. So let's go now to where fighting will begin. Yeah, back to Culp's Hill. To Culp's Hill. 4 o'clock, 4.30 in the morning. Obviously, times will vary, but what we do know is Lee has reinforced Ewell on Culp's Hill. But also, George Meade has reinforced his troops on Culp's Hill. And what we're going to see is fighting that both Jim and I agree is some of the most interesting and overlooked fighting, not only of July 3rd, but maybe of the entire Battle of Gettysburg. Okay, so what's the situation at Culp's Hill? Again, I'm just going to go real high level with this. This is not a Culp's Hill deep dive episode. But in a nutshell, as probably most of our dedicated and knowledgeable listeners know, the evening of July 2nd into the morning of July 3rd, the Confederates have gained a foothold on the lower end of Culp's Hill. George Sears Green's brigade had held the top of the Culp's Hill, thanks in part to breastworks and some of the field fortifications they had built. But Union Ar- elements of the Union Army's 12th Corps have started to come back into the zone overnight, July 2nd, July 3rd. Some artillery is set up along the Baltimore Pike. And the Army of the Potomac, the 12th Corps in particular, has made the decision that at daylight, they're going to, quote, shell the hell out of the rebels on the lower hill to be followed by some attacks to drive them off. And again, not trying to deep dive it. But to the original point here, one of my favorite moments of bad history really kind of swirls around Spangler's Spring Mm -hmm. and Spangler's Meadow, which we'll see a lot of heavy fighting that morning. My moment of bad history, though, doesn't relate so much to the fighting, but really more to some of the folklore that has always surrounded Spangler's Spring itself. And of course, folks... No, I'm not talking about the woman in white ghost story because we don't do that. I'm talking more about the quote-unquote history of the idea that the two sides would call a truce at Spangler's Spring to share water and basically, you know, to have a few brotherly fraternal moments in and around Spangler's Spring. First one that comes to my mind when I think of bad history in the area. And if you visit the battlefield and go to the cap that is over Spangler Spring today, you'll see that it essentially suggests that on the night of July 2nd into July 3rd, boys in blue and boys in gray shared water together here. And it's this nice sense of humanity in this Mm -hmm. carnage. And I think in many ways, the bad history is so compelling 
that it actually takes away from the absolute carnage yeah. that you're going to see on July 3rd in Spangler's Meadow. It is not a place of relaxation and right. rest. Um, ask the men of the 2nd Massachusetts, ask the men of the 27th Indiana about that going over. You will see heavy and at times brutal fighting mm-hmm. in that part of the field. But I think the idea of these soldiers having that, did Union soldiers drink water from Spangler's Spring the night of July 2nd and July 3rd? Sure. Did Confederate soldiers? Yes. Yeah. Was it the way we want it to be? And and if we really do kind of delve into the accounts, what you get a lot of is, I was getting water and I heard footsteps. Yeah, yeah. And I didn't know what those footsteps were. It was so I just kind of stepped back a little. It was Johnny Rebs. So yes, we in the darkness we quietly stepped back. And I think you're right. I think you know in, in episode one. We bagged on Shelby Foote a little bit, uh, and of course the movie and and stuff like that. But I think a lot of these kinds of stories start more from the veterans' eras. Yes, they do on the battlefield. You know that eighteen eighties, eighteen nineties period when a lot of these, as you said, these brutal combat stories, you know, got transitioned more in turn. You know, into well, Billy Yank. I didn't mm-hmm. want to shoot at you, but I had to, you know, mm-hmm. kind of stuff. And yes, the idea of a fraternal sharing of water at Spangler's Spring. It, it does bring up a good point that historians don't talk enough about, mm-hmm. and that's specifically the need for water. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, you just in yeah. your battle synopsis, you just don't talk about that enough, how these thousands of men and accompanying animals could go on hour after hour, day after day, without access to a water source. And, of course, the answer is you really can't. So the Spangler's Spring in the water is important. But as you said, it's clearly more of Union occupied the area for a while. They used water. Confederates occupied the area for a while. They partook in some water. But shaking hands, calling for a truce, I'm sorry. Bad Gettysburg history. And I know it's the image that you want in your mind. We deep down want these young men that struggled here to ultimately find some bit of closure for what they experienced here. Doesn't always happen. And I think what we see is we often talk about bad interpretations relating to Gettysburg. And often what you'll immediately hear is the quote unquote lost cause interpretation of the Battle of Gettysburg. I will argue that just as damaging and distorting is this reconciliation narrative that Mm -hmm. we begin to see in the 1890s, the early 1900s. A lot of it kind of you see it at its peak in the way that we envision, say, the 1913 reunion, the peace jubilee. Yeah. You know, that wasn't the reality for these guys here. I always say there's what happened here. And then there's how we interpret that history. That's what we argue about. And so, so I think what it is, is that a... Was that a common theme that maybe the soldiers themselves wanted to believe that part of their lives? Absolutely. And I think it was important to them. Therefore, it should be important to us as historians. At the same time, though, we cannot give them a pass and say that it doesn't have detrimental effects as well, because clearly we have a monument on the Gettysburg battlefield today that is interpreting an event that never happened. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So bad history at Spangler's Spring. Party field. Yes. Now... And it's not so much that this one is bad history, but I'm going to kind of 
tell you a little personal anecdote there, right? The charge of the Confederates across party field during the morning of July 3rd. Many of us know the story of a dog. Yes. Accompanying, you know, what I'm for sake of consistency, I'm going to call him the second Maryland. First Aww. Maryland CSA, you know, just for the sake of consistency. For now, the see, I was going to call them the first Maryland. Well, okay, so uh, see, and and we don't have super fan Jody here to on this Maryland exactly. issue here of what we should. Yeah. So, and by the way, Jody doesn't say Maryland; she says Maryland. Well, hey, if that's a local thing, but so, anyways, is the and I'm making air quotes here as the second Maryland CSA is charging across party field. And you know I'm going to take heed from some Southerner who's going to be mad I didn't call him the first. Sorry, folks. Just go along with it. Anyways, as they're charging across the field, there's a dog. We love dogs. I do love dogs. I know you love dogs. Yeah, Yeah, we love our dogs. There's a dog charging across the field with the boys in gray, the boys in blue, riddling the Confederate line with bullets, unfortunately riddle this, this dog. As the dog is dying, he he or she uh, allegedly licks the hands of many of the Union soldiers, and as a result, this dog gets a, a Christian burial, the only supposed Christian burial on the field. That story is kind of established. I'm not going to call it bad history. Mm-hmm. That story is kind of established. The, the nugget here that I'm going to kind of throw out for people to ponder, did the dog have a name? And so when I started coming out here 20, 25 years ago, I would always go to Battlefield Interpretations. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to mention names Mm -hmm. because, you know, we take the high road on this show. But I'd go to Battlefield Interpretations where people would always refer to it as Grace the Dog. I've also seen Gracie. Gracie, yes. I've seen as well some version of Grace. Yes, yeah. And so a couple years ago, and I got to call out somebody, you know, Somebody said to me, hey, what's the source on the dog being called Grace? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I had the source with the Christian burial and all that stuff. But I had to say, you know, now that you mention it, I've just always heard people call the mm-hmm. dog Grace or Gracie. So bad history, question mark? Does anybody know the source of this dog being called Grace? I'm not sure I do. So in full disclosure, I am not an expert on Maryland Confederates in the Civil War. Well, mate, that's a good point. So I, you know, what I would say, this is a call to any listeners, any super fans out there. If you can find that source, we'd love to see it. Yeah, maybe it's and in a regimental or yeah, something. Yeah, maybe it's in a regimental, maybe it's in a letter collection. I mean, we're open to the idea the dog has a name. We just want to know where it comes <laughs> from. That's all. I think ultimately, end of the day, that's what we want. We want to be able to source this information we have. Because think about it. How much of the Battle of Gettysburg is just stuff that we've always said because mm-hmm. it's always been said. Exactly. And so I think we have to be a little careful with that. So, you know, if someone wants to have a fun winter research project, delve into the primary source materials. Try to figure out where Grace comes from. Where does this, what's the historiography on this? We'd well, love to know. Well, as you said, there might be a, a Marland expert who's listening right now and might immediately say, oh, that's in Goldsboro's book or something like that. I don't know, maybe it is. But to the other point that you just raised, and folks, our first edition today of the Dan Sickles Report. Because I'll give you an example, the Dan Sickles story at Gettysburg mm-hmm. is kind of ripe with stuff people always just mm-hmm. said. 
And so to the point that you just made, stuff that everyone always just says and gets passed down is really, really dangerous and contributing to bad history. Now, the name of a dog, human interest. Not not dangerous, but there's other stuff that mm-hmm. you know people have said for years and years that just gets passed down that uh, could be dangerous from a historian's perspective. Hey, this is kind of a cute example of this, of a dog. As Jim said, there's also some, I think, larger issues in the field that maybe we'll talk about even on July 3rd as we go through through the episode. So, you know, if anybody has that information, we'd, we'd love to know it. Now, in the course of the fighting on Culp's Hill, what we will see by more or less 11 o'clock in, in the morning, Confederate attacks have stalled and have been pushed back. This is going to have, I think, a more important impact on Lee's decision-making than sometimes it gets credit for. Because what we have is this period from about now, let's say 11 a.m. to 1 p.m., where Lee's got to kind of figure right now, what do we do? Yeah. Where are we going here with this? And I could set that situation up, but who better to set up where Lee is right now than the man that actually wrote the book on it. Yes, we write books too. Jim, Where is what is Lee thinking at this critical moment in the battle? Oh, Eric, stop. I'm blushing. I'm blushing. Of course, co-wrote with our good friend Wayne Motts, but I appreciate the shout out. No, folks, I do not pay or encourage Eric to say moments like that, but it's very kind of him to do so. So what was the question again? No, I'm kidding. Um, yeah, so to set the stage in terms of a, from a bad history context, you know, we've always referred to Pickett's charge as kind of plan B. Mm-hmm. You know, as we said at the outset of the show, plan A, renew the attacks on the mm-hmm. flanks. As you just summarized, the attack at Culp's Hill is clearly failed by late morning, early afternoon. Lee, in the meantime, has realized Longstreet is not going to be ready to renew an attack. And so Lee and Longstreet are spending that late morning, mm-hmm. early afternoon gap looking for an alternate plan. Now, again, for simplicity's sake, I say plan A, plan B. I'm not implying that Lee ever referred to it as plan B. Mm -hmm. But I know some historians, Mm -hmm. again, not mentioning names, who think the plan B idea is bunk. Mm -hmm. No, this is what Lee tried to do, was attack up the center. I don't think the historical record supports any notion that Lee from the get-go was considering the attack on Cemetery Ridge to be his primary attack for the day. I do think the idea that it's plan B, the second plan, whatever you want to call it, what becomes Pickett's charge is Lee's second plan of the day. And in many ways, what we see in the morning of July 3rd, is it not the same questions that Lee has been struggling with at Gettysburg Mm -hmm. since he arrives in the battlefield about two o'clock on July 1st? So I think for me, there's a tendency in interpretation, how you tell the story, that you will have a plan A, a plan B. That's easy to understand. But I don't know if Lee was in his, I think it's a progression more than anything. It's what's available. What is my, what are the opportunities we have? I think it's an alternate. He realizes, he realizes the attacks on the flanks will not be properly coordinated. And I think he realizes, okay, I tried uncoordinated attacks yesterday that, 
although partially successful, didn't get us what we wanted. So I'm going to look for an mm -hmm. alternate. And I do think I do think it transitions. Like I said, I, I use plan A, plan B for simplicity, but it does transition to an alternate. And as Lee, Longstreet, and their staffs are spending that time riding up and down the Emmitsburg Road corridor, going up and down Seminary Ridge, looking for that alternate, they decide the attack on the more what they refer to as kind of the left center of mm -hmm. Cemetery Ridge that we know today as Pickett's Charge. And there is even some steps that Lee and Longstreet mm -hmm. take to even get from, if we're looking at what Lee's plan A, quote unquote, was to what plan B is. Well, there's also like this weird plan A version <laughs> 2.0. I mean, with McClaws and Hood that yeah, are considered. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of things that are getting looked at that day. And I think what really is remarkable to me is think about the time frame these decisions and this plan is being put together at the earliest we're looking at is maybe 11 a.m when do the guns start later that afternoon two two and a half hours later give or take so this is not a long amount of time taken to really develop this plan which shows that lee is still sooner than later yeah yeah with this Good point. i mean this is not we're going to wait all day and then go i think lee wants to make sure that if we're going to do this we need to have enough time to not only have success but to be able to follow up on that success mm -hmm. because lee is very aware that you know what his army is going to be in some tough situations logistically july 4th july 5th and this is before this has even happened so yeah. he, he's kind of we're gonna to have to figure this thing out one way or the other on july 3rd well and i'll bring up a topic here that will be near and dear to your heart as our resident expert on all things north carolina of course the notion itself of pickett's charge yes. is of course bad history yes you know george pickett's virginia division is a spearhead in the attack because they have not been utilized up to this point in the battle, having arrived on the field on the afternoon of July 2nd. As you alluded to in your commentary, Hood and McClaws' divisions are considered mm -hmm. at one point, but not only have they been badly chewed up on July 2nd, they also represent whatever tenuous right flank Longstreet has at this point. So, Eric... If we can't look to any more support from Longstreet's Corps, and of course Ewell's guys are tied mm -hmm. up completely on the other end of the field. And more or less fought out by this point. Yeah, and more or less fought out. Who who might we turn to at this point? And are they just support for General Pickett, or do they play an integral part of the attack itself? Well, we're of course going to be talking about the divisions under the command of Johnston Pettigrew, as well as Isaac Trimble, of course, Two days before, these were the divisions under the command of Henry Heath and William Dorsey Pender. So what we're going to see is that, I mean, I often joke, if we wanted to be accurate, we would call this attack James Longstreet's July 3rd assault against Cemetery Ridge, featuring the divisions of George Pickett, Isaac Trimble, and Johnston Pettigrew, with guest appearances by David Lang and Cadmus Wilcox. That's a lot to say. <laughs> sure is. It's a lot easier to say. It's a lot easier to just say Pickett's charge, and and this is where to show that I am not just a biased North Carolinian historian. Where is the Confederate, for lack of a better term, media hub mm. in 1863? It's Richmond, Virginia. So when the reports of this attack are trickling back in, if you ever want some interesting reading, read Richmond newspapers in early July as they're viewing the Gettysburg campaign, 
and what they think is happening up here at the time. But that's another story altogether. But what you're going to see is, I mean, a Virginia newspaper is going to report on the exploits of Virginia troops. No different than if you read a Raleigh newspaper or a Charlotte newspaper. Mm -hmm. What are they reporting on? They're reporting on North Carolina troops. So that is one of the reasons why in some of those early accounts of this attack, it is listed as Pickett's charge. There is no ulterior motive there is no anything like that it's just that's what they're calling it and over time that name just kind of builds and builds and builds and of course later you will see you know uh the picket pettigrew tremble assault yeah. long streets assault you'll see some some other names but a lot of times when it comes to history kind of the first name that gets out there is what this event's going to be called for posterity well, it's too bad for you guys in, in the Carolinas that there was no Jim Crockett promotions Yes, at the time of the yes. Civil War. Because I guarantee you Jim Crockett and team with Dusty Rhodes maybe as their booker at the time might have might have turned that around for you. Well, you know, it's all who has the book at the time. That's mm-hmm. all. That's the key. But, um, but to that point, and it's important to remember too, you know, then these Virginia accounts often refer to Pettigrew as providing support for General right. Pickett. And of course, when the attack failed, you know, the supports of General Pettigrew gave way first, mm-hmm. leaving General Pickett's men alone on the field kind of thing. Um, just as a reminder, in the, the more contemporary reports, Pettigrew and team are referred to as reinforcements. Mm-hmm. You know, Longstreet, because he can't use Hood and McClaws, was to be reinforced by Heath and half of Pender, which, as we said, became Pettigrew and Trimble. Point being, these guys are equally as mm-hmm. important, if not more mm-hmm. so, to the success of the attack than Pickett's division is. Well, you know, and we talked about in the Longstreet multi-parter, the, uh, the preference of a guy like Longstreet mm-hmm. to attack in depth. And he doesn't have great depth mm-hmm. in this attack. But I think, and this kind of leads into the other component of bad history here in terms of what the mm-hmm. objective is. I think the idea is the objective is the broad front of Cemetery Ridge, mm-hmm. uh, about a mile or so in width. I'm not proposing the cops of trees, people. I just want to be clear there the cops of trees is the objective in of itself might be one of the most famous pieces of bad history in all of gettysburg history but i do think that front of cemetery ridge and again in the pickett's charge book we elaborate you know why we think so but that front of cemetery ridge which you know with you see you see pickett's guys and pettigrew's guys talking about who is going to dress on who during the attack i think their objective is that front line kemper garnet and um pettigrew are supposed to hit Cemetery Ridge at the same time. Then you've got Armistead and Trimble behind mm-hmm. them, kind of backing it up. And again, folks, we know it doesn't work. We're mm-hmm. not, an, that's an right. argument for a different time. But I think, yeah, the bad history piece here now transitions into what are these guys supposed to do? And I think, and I often use the Armistead Long account, the objective is to basically split the Union line at that point. Cemetery Ridge. Not the cops of trees, but I also don't think they were headed to Cemetery Hill directly. No. And that somehow, as some people have proposed, and I know some people like the theory, that somehow gunfire in confusion of the battlefield pushed 
Pettigrew and Shrimble away from Cemetery Hill and towards Cemetery Ridge. I think the statements they make and the actions and movements on the battlefield clearly show Cemetery Ridge to be the objective. After they turn the Union line at that point, do I think they would turn towards Cemetery Hill? Mm -hmm. Quite possibly, yes. And, and we have accounts to talk about that. But the idea that they would make a frontal assault up the face of Cemetery Hill and that somehow they got confused or misdirected, I think is ridiculous. And, and really, I mean, the idea that Lee would want to gain Cemetery Ridge is not a shocker if you knew what his plan was the day before. He's trying for the same objective, just doing it differently. And I think if you also look, you know, the reality is we sometimes give Civil War attacks a lot more credit for as decisive as they are. Yeah. Lee understands that initial, if we want to call it, quote unquote, first wave, picket, Pettigrew, hitting, that's going to get you a foothold. Mm -hmm. That's going to get you there. You're going to need artillery support. You're going to need further troops to push those attacks. But... If you get a foothold, now you got a chance. And if you just look at just, I always say geography shapes so much of this battle. Mm -hmm. Cemetery Hill from more or less the west, the north, and the east is a bear to have to try to capture. Mm -hmm. But from the south, just, I always say, stand at the Pennsylvania Monument and look towards the National Cemetery. Right. That's not that crazy to think. That's maybe the better way we should try to right, go. Right, exactly, exactly. That if you're going to take Cemetery Hill as an objective, that's the way you go, rather than going straight across the field in the teeth of the, not only the artillery, because we often talk about the Union artillery on Cemetery Hill, and it's quite formidable, mm. but also the skirmishers and the infantry in front of Cemetery Hill. So Cemetery Ridge is the target of the attack. The ultimate objective after gaining that foothold might be Cemetery Hill. But again, this kind of comes into another piece of it. You use the term first wave. Mm -hmm. And many historians right. and pundits have argued for years over was there supposed to be a second mm -hmm. wave. Again, I think certainly the case is made in portions of Anderson's division, mm -hmm. some of the guys that are in Long Lane, mm -hmm. that they were told mm -hmm. that you know when the opportunity presented itself or when given the order to move forward. And again, in some cases, mm -hmm. in some cases, in, in particular Anderson's division, it was Longstreet who ultimately gave the directive to say, no, the attack has right. failed, don't move forward. But clearly there was an intent there to do so if that was gained. And this is a piece that, you know, bad history people have argued about for years, right. whether or not that existed. And and to kind of steal a more modern term in World War II, we often talked about our operations in the Pacific as island hopping. Mm -hmm. In many ways, what Lee is doing at Gettysburg is he's attempting to ridge hop. You're moving from Seminary Ridge to what we're going to call the Emmitsburg Road Ridge. Mm -hmm. You use that as a way to push towards Cemetery Ridge. If you secure Cemetery Ridge, now you have a base of operations to continue to push against uh, Cemetery Hill and maybe even Culp's Hill, potentially. So, But you have to gain those areas before you can do that. And what we will see ultimately is that Lee doesn't gain the ridges in really the time and in the order that he needs to. But I think it is something that we have to kind of think about. And this is where, folks, the best way to learn this battle is to spend time on the battlefield. Mm -hmm. Walk oh. this ground as much as you can. And I, and I sometimes tell folks on tours, 
sometimes the best thing you can do coming here to Gettysburg isn't to follow in in the footsteps of this individual company while that's fun. Yeah. Sometimes just walk around the battlefield and note what you can see and mm-hmm. what you can't see. And that will give you, I think, such a better appreciation of why decisions are made here. And I, I think it's kind of funny sometimes, you know, I think some of the harshest critics of work that we do come from people that if they spent maybe 10 hours in this battlefield all year, they're doing pretty good. Well, you know, fair you know? I mean, I, I think that's something to keep in mind that you cannot replicate time spent on the field. Yeah, it, no, just, it, it cannot be factored in elsewhere. You know, and, you, and you're right about that. I mean, there's a lot of people who are good scholars of the books and the sources mm-hmm. or that sort of thing. But you're right. I mean, you come into town one weekend a year, mm-hmm. um, you know, and you're kind of criticizing or poking mm-hmm. at people like us who literally spend hundreds of hours mm-hmm. a year, if not more, on the field. And and you're right. There's no substitute for walking it. I would submit, you know, I walk a lot of pickets charge mm-hmm. tours. I also walk a fair number of pedigree, what I'll call pedigree yes. charge. Yep. Tours, but what I'll say is so often I get people on the field who are like, oh my God, I've walked Pickett's division a million times. Mm-hmm. I never did this Pettigrew's part of the field before. Mm-hmm. Part of that is, of course, the paths in and around Pickett's area, Pickett's mm-hmm. march zone, are much more maintained in mode than Pettigrew's are, but it helps contribute to this overall bad history mm-hmm. idea that it's all picket and not enough Pettigrew and Trimble. And and that is certainly a battle that will rage in a much more fierce nature in the years after. But keep in mind, if you read contemporary newspapers in the months after uh, Gettysburg, you will see a lot of heat between North Carolinians and Virginians in the newspapers going back and forth. I have a letter from John Jones, Major of the 26th North Carolina, writing to Henry Burgwin's father. And this is a quote that he says, tell any man in this army that a North Carolinian didn't go where a Virginian did, and he would think you a damned fool. So this is something that's not just post-war arguing. It's happening in the moment. It just gets even bigger. And I think part of it is, you know, we talk about the battlefield and battlefield restoration. One of the things that I have realize that is a missing component when we think about robert e lee's planning on july 3rd can you stand and see exactly what robert e lee saw on july 3rd of what that union position looked like you can't cemetery hill has changed drastically seminary ridge has changed drastically and one of the you know a lot of times we'll set up pickett's charge in the confederate view north carolina memorial virginia memorial one of the more interesting things I, i will do and recommend anybody if you're driving down confederate avenue Stop by the old armory and yep. get out and look at Cemetery Ridge from that position. Yep, yep. It looks a lot different than just a couple hundred yards down yeah. the road. And so do that at times. You know, it's not just reading the accounts, but putting yourself as close to where they were when these decisions are made. Yep. And and I think that is a, a critical component. And when we don't have that, it makes it very easy for bad history to kind of pop up. Because what happens is to make one of the worst things I hate with historians is when they try to make things work. Mm, yeah and sometimes from certain parts of the field you have to take kind of some leaps that to make it work that i don't know are always necessarily the best thing in terms of historical interpretation trying to get the story right yeah good points all and i'll I'll add to that the decision to launch what we know today is pickett's charge there's a fair 
fairly compelling body of evidence that that decision was made in and around the peach orchard. Mm -hmm. A morning conference between Lee, Longstreet, a number of their staff officers, Longstreet offering his objections, some of the staff officers saying, no, don't worry, we can can neutralize this or that sort of thing. So there's a great body of work that suggests that the peach orchard played a huge part in the morning planning. So go to the peach orchard. Mm Forget about July 2nd, as cool as it is, mm-hmm. Sickles, Barksdale, all that stuff. Look at the Peach Orchard, Emmitsburg Road, purely from a July 3rd perspective. Mm-hmm. Look at how starting there and then working along the Emmitsburg Road, you can get a sense of how Lee hoped to converge mm-hmm. fire onto Cemetery Ridge and, yes, Cemetery Hill from multiple directions. So yeah, the planning aspect of it and getting on the field, which to me leads to another element of bad history with Pickett's Charge, the use of the artillery. Yes. And specifically how I think of this, how many people do you hear? You know, you look across the field, oh my God, it was suicidal to offer a frontal assault against the rifled musket. What was Lee thinking? Lee must have been crazy to order that frontal assault because they don't fully appreciate Mm -hmm. in the concert of action how Lee hoped the artillery would literally clear the way for the infantry. Mm -hmm. And not only so, you know, this idea that this noisy two-hour artillery bombardment which precedes the charge, that wasn't the plan. No. Again, they misjudged it, but Mm -hmm. what they thought and hoped for was by converging fire, they could silence the Union defenses certainly certainly more quickly than two hours, but that they could silence and drive off the Union defenses such that when the Confederate infantry came across the field, again, it would have literally cleared the way for them, and a lot of the resistance that the Confederate infantry met wouldn't have been there. Again, not making excuses. It didn't happen, but that's the real history. Mm -hmm. The bad history that Lee ordered a frontal assault because he didn't realize, you know, men behind a stone wall were just going (laughs) to mow down his infantry. That, my friends, bad Gettysburg history. And I often describe what Lee envisions as the bombardment, to use a a modern term, it's kind of shock and awe Mm -hmm. on a battlefield. It's going to be very short, but very violent. And... And people say, yeah, but could the artillery have done it? Well, ask a lot of those batteries on Cemetery Ridge how they were faring in that initial bombardment. Now, the problem is when you begin to lose visibility, you begin to have any number of issues that throw off. And I'm not going to get into the fuses and all of this, but I mean, just the nature of of battle is your first shots are going to be better than your last, than your later shots. But what we see is it develops into something longer. And then we get into this point where, well, it appears that fire is slackening on Cemetery Ridge about the same time that Confederate mm-hmm. batteries are running low on ammunition. It's not a tremendous leap to think that, all right, maybe if we're running low, they're either out or we finally knocked them out. If the attack's going to go, now is the time because the idea is that this attack is going to be launched really right after those guns end. You're going to have a disorganized, confused situation. You're punching through that. You're trying to use panic as a force multiplier. Mm-hmm. And that is what Lee is looking to do. And if you look at attacks that have worked in the 19th century that involved a concentrated artillery barrage followed by an infantry attack, it is critical that, that attack is happening almost immediately when those guns end. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't really... 
yeah. happen. And as we know, I mean, had Lee known the artillery didn't have the the impact it did, he wouldn't have ordered the attack. You know, it's. I think what we have is we sometimes give these commanders more information than what they actually oh, have yeah, had no doubt. in their minds. Because we have so much information yeah. today, we assume they did. And of course, in a lot of cases, they didn't. I mean, even if you tell, I tell groups this regularly, if you have kind of a little individual park map that the National Park Service gives you to tour the battlefield, mm-hmm. you have more information in that little park map than either George Meade or Robert E. Lee had for the entire situation on this battlefield at any given time in this battle. So you already know more than they do. Plus, you have the Gettysburg Address. Yeah. Like, how cool was that to know that? Yeah, that was really cool. It's happening later. And, and, you know, and maybe maybe that's why the Confederates wanted Cemetery Hill. Because the Confederates occupied Cemetery Hill. Lincoln can't dedicate a cemetery here. Or they have a front row seat when he gives the address. Or you know it was crowded that day. Or they just wanted to get very close to our studio here on Cemetery Hill at Getty's Gear. Is this good ground? It's very good ground. Let's take a brief pause to thank tonight's sponsor, Getty's Gear. You can find them in Gettysburg at 777 Baltimore Pike or always online at gettysgear.com. They have gourmet coffee, cigars, dog treats, stuffies for your kids, and much, much more. So stop by and see our friends at Getty's Gear. Support them like they support us. So obviously there's a lot going into July 3rd with kind of myth memory, you name it. But also, you know, when we think about this attack, what is one of the one, when we talk about the cost of that attack, Mm -hmm. the one thing that you will often hear is that there are three brigade commanders killed in that attack. Jim, who are the three commanders that are often listed killed in that attack? Yeah. And, and again, folks, the reason Eric is deferring to me on this is because he knows I have some personal history with this. Going back many years, giving pickets charge walks, I used to ask people that question. And of course, what people would say is, you know, I just sort of a trivia, get the audience involved, folks. Who were the three Confederate brigade commanders lost in this attack? Uh, you know, and usually, of course, Arms, Armstead goes first. Pause for a minute. Somebody will say Garnet. And then, and this goes back many years, and I'll explain how this has changed a little bit. 99 times out of 100, somebody's hand would come up and say, Kemper, Brigadier General James Kemper, the other brigade commander in Pickett's division. And, you know, I would say, eh, wrong. Kemper survived the attack. And somebody would almost always say, no, he died in the movie. Now, technically, uh-huh. he doesn't die in the movie, but the last time we see him in right. the movie is he says to the effect of, and I forget the exact line, but generally I'm told my wounds are mortal. Uh-huh. And of course, then that leads generations of moviegoers to think Jimmy Kemper did not survive Pickett's charge. Folks, I'm pleased to announce today <laughs> that although James Kemper is now dead, he did survive 1863 and, you know, went on to live. I forget what year he does die. You may remember, uh, but uh, uh, goes on to have a long career. Governor in, of Virginia. Yeah, in politics yeah. and veterans yeah. affairs. So he did He did live a relatively full life and did not die. So Eric, as a son of North Carolina, leading North Carolina mm-hmm. troops is where I'm going with this. You want to tell folks 
who the real third answer is? Of course, it is Colonel James Marshall of the 52nd North Carolina and temporary command of Johnston Pettigrew's brigade. And this kind of goes back even to the Virginia-North Carolina rivalry. A brigade commander leading North Carolina troops gets almost completely forgotten mm-hmm. even being killed here at this battle. Mm-hmm. That That's hard to kind of sometimes wrap your mind around. It's not this is a forgotten figure. James Marshall was the grandson of Chief Justice yeah. John Marshall. Yeah. He comes from a very well-to-do Virginia family. He is related by marriage to George Washington, as well as Thomas Jefferson, distantly related even to Pickett and Lee. So this is an interesting individual, born in Virginia, but he's actually going to be teaching school in Edenton, North Carolina in 1861, when he eventually gets command of Company M, Yes, there's something you don't hear very often, a Company M of the 1st North Carolina Volunteers and later will will continue his career commanding North Carolina troops. But how many people talk about Marshall? No, I know. Nobody does. Nobody does. And his death is a very dramatic one. He's near the Emmitsburg Road. Some accounts have him mounted. Some say he's not mounted. But either way, he's right in the thick mm-hmm. of it in that maelstrom along the Emmitsburg Road. Mm-hmm. I mean, it would be an awesome scene in a movie, but that's not what we get. Yeah. And so, you know, we do see that sometimes. And I've often wondered how we would, would Pickett's charge be viewed differently if Micah Jenkins' South Carolinians had been on the field? Remember, not all of Pickett's division is actually here on the field. Two brigades are detached, Montgomery Corsi, mm-hmm. as well as South Carolina. Corsi had Virginians, but you have a South Carolina brigade under Jenkins. I wonder if you if you would have had Jenkins on the field. Mm-hmm. Do you lose this all of Virginia is here and South Carolina? You know, like <laughs> yeah. it's I think it changes the dynamic a little bit. Yeah, so, you know, sometimes one of these things, these random assignments happen here and there impact the way we're going to view history for generations to come. Yeah, no doubt about that. And, you know, to the Marshall point, think again, you know, bright young man yeah. with a promising future mm-hmm. cut down at the Emmitsburg Road. You know, you talked about final soliloquies before. Mm-hmm. He is alleged to have said something to the effect of, we do not know which of us will be the next to fall. And then a bullet yeah. strikes him and he's killed. But uh, yeah, you know, it's a great it's a great point there. And, you know, kind of what you were just saying about Corsi and, Corsi and Jenkins and Virginia kind of leads me to another one then that I'm thinking of related to the charge. And that is, of course, Lee and it's all my fault. Yes. Right? Now, again, I think we have, I, I, I think we are like-minded on this. There are numerous accounts that say to the effect of Lee greeted the guys as they're coming back. And, you know, you know, all true men mm. must rally around me. You know, it's all my fault. Help me get out of this. Yes. Yeah. Do not look to others. Right. Help me get out of this sort of thing. And I think, we, you know, what I've always said, you probably agree, is yes, it's an inspirational moment. Mm-hmm. Don't don't blame anyone else. You know, the dissension and everything that can arise from that. Rally, mm-hmm. rally around me. In particular, if those people launch a counterattack, mm-hmm. you know, we've got to be we've got to be ready to do it. Interestingly enough, I feel like I've seen some recent histories, mm-hmm. in some cases written by reputable historians, yeah. that try to say, mm-hmm. no, that moment didn't happen. I have I have watched a C-SPAN interview with a very prominent Civil War academic who flat out said it's all lost cause nonsense it didn't happen and then this is where 
I am not a fan of the lost cause. Right. But I think there's a tendency in the era we're in now where the cool thing to do is throw out all those traitors' words. They don't matter. Throw out that lost cause nonsense. You can't. Mm -hmm. Now, a good historian knows what is crap and what is good. Mm -hmm. But you can't totally throw it out. And it's very clear that does the story kind of gain traction later? Absolutely it is. But there is enough guys on the field that day that are writing about this, Agreed. that are talking about this. Agreed. There is evidence that Lee is very active, along with Longstreet, mm-hmm. Pettigrew, and others, to rebuild what's left of that line. Because if I'm Robert E. Lee in that moment, it's I know what I would do if the roles were reversed. Yeah, yeah. And Lee is prepared for that. And I think what you begin to see is, is Lee becoming very hands-on yeah. at this moment. And he's going to remain hands-on until the end of this campaign. Well, even beyond the campaign, you know, when you said that, that got me thinking, you know, later on, Lee to the rear. Is this not, maybe, you know, maybe, and this is something that I did not connect that until just now with us talking. Is this maybe perhaps the the moment where Lee's command style changes a little bit? Um, Who knows? Maybe we're reading more into it than what there is, but I think you can make a compelling case. And isn't that what history is? Exactly. Mm -hmm. I mean, if if the Army of the Potomac does come counterattacking off Cemetery Ridge at this point, is this a Lee to the rear moment? You know, we won't, you know, Lee Mm -hmm. trying to lead the boys forward. Forward and, and Could you imagine Lee leading Mahone's brigade into the yeah. counterattack? How cool would that oh, be? That, that would be awesome. And Mahone would have done something. <laughs> so. And you know, the movie, the movie, I don't think, does a great job of this moment. Yeah. Again, you know, I'm not a fan of Sheen's portrayal throughout. Again, I know we have mm. friends who really love it. I'm sorry, I don't. I don't think he does a great job here. But what the movie then does transition to is Longstreet and some of the staff going up to work guns. That seems to be yeah. historically accurate. Well, there's, it, there's, there's, you know, him going, him going out to some of the bat Longstreet being going out to some of the batteries in front. I do think that's accurate. Mm-hmm. Um, now again, you know, the shot comes in and T.J. Gorey gets unhorsed and you know mm-hmm. how are you tj intolerable sir uh, that's all and, a bunch of- and even then if you look at that look at lee he's aloof yeah long streets the man of action exactly even exactly. then it builds into this and, yep. and you know I, I don't know maybe do we just give a lifetime achievement award to bad history to ronald maxwell <laughs> you think he would come and accept that Probably not. Well, you know, the thing but, is... But, I mean, in all seriousness, I mean, you think about how much yeah. that impacts how we view this battle, yeah. and it's even to the point where it's not even... I think people are doing consciously. Well, I, I think it's now, really, it's just so ingrained in the Civil War story. Yeah. And, yeah. and once again, folks... This is stuff that we have to deal with as professional historians mm-hmm. every day, sifting through these multiple layers. And I think, you know, when we get into that, I'll just kind of close on the idea that whatever your personal opinions of the people that are taking part in this event, they are still for better or worse, our best resources and sources on what happened here. And I think there is a tendency, as I say, to toss some of these accounts out because it doesn't, we don't like it. Well, I have, I I have a friend, a very noted friend, but I don't want to embarrass him by calling him out here on the show or that, but I have a friend who basically says, you know, we'll get to the point where we don't believe, where we won't believe what anyone who fought here said. You know, we throw every account out. Well, you know, it was after the war. Throw that account out. Mm -hmm. It's lost cause. Throw Mm -hmm. that account out. He was writing for publication. Throw that account Mm -hmm. out. 
don't use the ORs. They're CYA. Throw that account right. out. I mean, yes, the role of the historian is to try to sift through the multiple accounts, evaluate, mm -hmm. consider the motives, consider the time lapse. You got to do, you got to do all that. But yes, if you overthink Wait, this, if I, you, if I, you I, overthink this though, you can throw out literally every single account. Absolutely. What you have to do as a historian, you have to gather as much accounts as you can. And then you got to have some semblance of something happened here. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, it's funny people, I don't think really realize what it means to be a historian. And I think that's part of it. You know, folks, historian is not getting up and recording you reading something that somebody else wrote. That's not being a historian. The, the art of a historian is taking these multiple sources, trying to make sense of them, walking them on the field, looking at why they were, they were coming to the conclusion they were, and also factoring that in uh, but these are all things that we have to do. And I think too often we don't do it. And it, it kind of leads to the bad history that we, that we see today. Yeah. So have we, um, if I'm trying to think here, we're doing this without a script folks. It's just two guys talking at Getty's gear. I'm trying to think, have we missed anything notable with Pickett's charge? You know, I'm sure that? someone will remind well, us that sure. we forgot sure. private Joseph Jenkins of, the, of yeah, you know, we'll, we'll, I'm sure we'll get dinged for something. Well, we should, we should at least touch on most people know better, but it still comes up. It comes up on battlefield tours. Sometimes people are almost embarrassed to ask, but they ask, mm -hmm. you know, kind of sheepishly or that. No, the 20th Maine was yes. not at the angle. Yes. Right. Yep. And again, from a Hollywood dramatic perspective, I get it. Mm -hmm. Jeff Daniels is at the top of your billing. You got to put him in the climax, mm -hmm. even if he doesn't do anything. Yeah, it's kind of cool to have Tom Chamberlain mm -hmm. tending to Armstead after he's gone down. But just to clarify, if there is an I mean, we have a pretty hardcore audience. I'm not too mm. worried about this. But if anybody listening isn't sure about it, no, the 20th main, 20th main was not at the high watermark, the angle, during Pickett's charge, during the repulse of the charge. They were further south down Cemetery Ridge, kind of opposite the George Weikert farm on the ridge line, where the, uh, the what I always call the New Jersey Watchtower yes. is yep. today. You know, they were kind of in that area. Uh, Tom Chamberlain did not... Tend mm -hmm. to Armistead. That actually seems to have been one of Hancock's staff officers, mm -hmm. Henry Bingham. But of course, that was not a character in the movie. So you weren't going to throw right. him in at the last minute. Uh, but again, bad history. I get why that nugget mm -hmm. of bad history was created, but it doesn't make it any less bad history. Right. And I think we should put out there that the 20th Maine is not not exactly in a safe spot on July 3rd. I mean, there's some overshoots that are that are causing things to be pretty dicey there. Did a tour a couple years ago for a family that had a relative here, fights in the wheat field, survives the wheat field, ends up getting killed essentially lack of a better term mop-up operations for union troops. He's brought up very into the fight and he he's one of two men in his regiment that get killed that day. I mean, talk about the unfairness of war right there. Uh, yeah. you, know, you survive the wheat field and you get killed as Pickett's guys are retreating off the up. field, yeah, yeah. you know, but that's, that's the reality of things. So I think, you know, so much of this battle was where you were on the field and when you were there and how you interpret that. Yeah, we, we know why it was done. Obviously, you have to bring everybody together in the end, but you'll note, I think it was very savvy how they did this. It was very nuanced. They didn't have the 20th main fight. 
that's it. Because you mentioned Sharon, I, I, it just occurred to me that we should clarify. I know we said the movie, right. but this is a passage that rings true to the book. Right. And it's been a while since I've read the book, so forgive me, but my memory... My memory is that they close, you know, because they do each chapter mm -hmm. by an individual. My memory is they close off the chapter by having Chamberlain fall asleep during the cannonade. Right. And, they, and then they kind of end the ch chapter. And it's kind of a way to put in there, but to get him out of the story right. kind of thing. And by the way, if anybody's thinking, well, that's a ridiculous notion. No, there's accounts all the time in the Civil War of guys going to sleep. Yeah. During artillery assaults. You'll read it in the First World War for yeah. even bigger artillery. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. that that part of it in itself is not as ridiculous as it might sound. But I just wanted to clarify, mm -hmm. we should pin this one on the book and not the movie. And again, somebody out there is saying, Jim, Eric, it was a novel. We get it. We get it. Been there, done that. We get it. But th th this is the bad history yeah. episode. And And here's the difference. It's a novel to you. But we have to undo all of yeah. that as our as our job. Yeah. You know, it's like you know, it, it, people forget that, and it's and it's something that we enjoy doing. I mean, if I yeah. did not enjoy being a battlefield guide, I would not be a battlefield guide. But the reality is that routinely, I have to basically remove from visitors' mind a lot of this that has been some of this bad history, yeah. and of course, give them credit for coming here, getting a licensed battlefield guide, trying to learn more. Uh, that's a wonderful thing, but yeah, it does impact. And, and you know, going back to what someone said, I maybe sounded kind of angry the first time we did this. And you know, what does kind of make me angry is, is lazy history. Yeah, sure. That really bothers me because I think important you events happened here. People's lives were impacted by them. Give it at least a good college try, mm -hmm. you know? And I think I, what I'm tired of is I think, we're we're getting to a point where is our history becoming 30 second sound bites or three minute YouTube videos, you know, and I mean, I think that's something that we have to be very careful about. So, yeah, you know, do I take what I do seriously? Absolutely. I do because I want to get it right. I want to sure. get it right for the people that were here. That's why I want to get it right for them. So, yeah, if I do come off kind of angry at times. Yeah, because I am a historian. I don't play one on TV. I don't play one on the Internet. It's what I am, and I do take that seriously. And I think you would hope your historians take what mm -hmm. they do seriously. So, since I've broken kayfabe and I'm not getting Russell Jimmies, would you like to borrow my Jimmies for a moment to get Russell? Wait, now, will this count to your yearly average? Will this ruin your, how are we handling this here? That's a good, well, I would leave that to the super so, fan who, who keeps counting my Jimmies. So what we're going to do, uh, we'll just take a brief break as we get a, an official's <laughs> ruling on this. And, and while we'll I come, hand off the Jimmies. We'll, we'll come, we'll, we'll let you know how, how this worked out. But of course, you know, so much of July 3rd when we think of Gettysburg yeah. is Pickett's Charge. Yeah. You would think that Really, nothing was happening on July 3rd except for like maybe three hours of stuff. Right, right. You know, and of course, Pickett's Charge is not even the only action taking place on the quote unquote Gettysburg battlefield at the same at time. That time. Right. And another part of the battlefield that actually we both have an affinity for, mm -hmm. of course, we have done a two part episode mm -hmm. on East Cavalry Field that we hope you will check that out. But, Jim, another area that might oh, be very God. ripe for bad history. Yeah, yeah, boy, where to start. And again, as Eric said, not only do I personally love East Cavalry Field, not only do I give a lot of tours out at East Cavalry Field, but for all of my Custer friends who are listening right now, you know that I have the highest regard 
for the role George Armstrong Custer plays, not only during the Gettysburg campaign, but really the entire Civil War. But bad history, yeah, the idea that the fighting at East Cavalry Field on July 3rd saved the Union, and I'm using that phrase because there are books out there Mm -hmm. literally with that in the title, Mm -hmm. you know, Custer versus Stewart, the fight that saved the Union kind of thing, all bad history in of itself. And I'm going to break a little bit of it down. Before I break it down, though, what I always tell people at East Cav, and I'm going to say it again, it's a shame that East Cav has a lot of bad history wrapped mm-hmm. around it because that tends to open it up to ridicule. Yes, it does. From yeah. the hardcore Gettysburg people mm-hmm. and particularly, you know, the infantry folks. Mm-hmm. Oh, ha, ha, ha. Whoever saw a dead cavalryman kind of thing. Mm-hmm. It's a shame that ridicule is there because when you strip the bad history away, East Cavalry Field is still an awesome story. Yeah. And as Mike Phipps used to call it, it really is Cavalry Valhalla. But so anyways, let's break a couple pieces down here. And we're not going to go into the mm-hmm. East Cav deep dive again, Dave. Because we've already done it. Because we already yeah, did it. Yeah, it's already there in the archives. Not only is it in the archives, but it's also one of the ones that are now out on YouTube. There we go. So mm-hmm. you, you can get it coming and going. With video accompaniments with it. So, okay, David M. Gregg, commanding part of his Cavalry Division, which is blocking the key Hanover Road, Low Dutch Road intersection. If the enemy gains a foothold there, they're only about two and a half miles away from the strategic Baltimore Pike and Meade's supply line. I think many people know that. That's kind of the setup. Custer's role at East Cavalry Field is very important because he significantly reinforces Greg in terms of numbers. And also, as a brigade commander, Custer does exactly what you would hope a brigade commander would do. He gets out in front and he leads his men. Yeah. And his men do the fighting. Mm -hmm. So all of that is good. Um, Again, the piece that is bad history is the idea that, first of all, Stuart, Jeb Stewart's role out there was not coordinated with Pickett's Charge. Mm -hmm. It's been, I think, pretty well demonstrated that Stewart is mm-hmm. out there, A, to protect the flanks. Stewart says, I'm also hoping to affect a surprise on mm-hmm. the enemy's rear. So there is that element there. But there is not what you would call a combined operation no. going here where, you know, you know, we've gone into the war room and Lee has put a map up on the board where Pickett's, <laughs> where Pickett's going to hit him from the front at three o'clock. Stewart's going to hit him from the back at three o'clock. We'll all meet at the Cops of Trees at 3.58 p.m. No, no, no. I not. picture Lee with like a telestrator right now. Exactly. Like, yeah, you, know, you look, the left guard blocked yeah, right it, here. Exactly. You got to keep that sealed. Exactly. With staff officers coming yeah, in and out with yeah. messages. The telegram wire clicking none of that's true Stuart knows there's going to be an attack that day or he should know there's mm-hmm. going to be an attack somewhere that day and in the event of a confederate victory which Stuart would interpret as a yankee mm-hmm. retreat he's probably going to want to be there yeah the idea though that Stuart could break through to the baltimore pike and thus mm-hmm. defeat the army of the potomac and thus and the Union as we know it is not supported by the historical accounts. It's not supported by a knowledge of the terrain. It's not supported by the relative strengths and conditions mm-hmm. of the people involved. An important flank fight, yes. Did it save the Union? I say no. And and Stuart's doing what Stuart excels right. at. I mean, this is kind of par for the course for Stuart. 
and what I have always found interesting about it is that really what people do know of East Cav is typically bad history. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it and you almost I've had times where I've really had to make my argument that, no, these are not two connected events. They're happening at the same time, happening on the same battlefield, involving the same army, but they are not two connected. And I will admit for a program that I am preparing for over at the World War II experience, yeah. when I will be talking about Winston Churchill and the Battle yeah. of Gettysburg, one of the proponents of this, and, and this shows you I'm objective, maybe my favorite historical figure ever is Winston Churchill. Churchill was a proponent in some of his writings on Gettysburg on the idea that Stuart was there to be moving around. So we're looking at even a concept that dates back even to Winston Churchill's oh, era. before that. You know, this is this is nothing new. This is not something... And I think what I find funny with what, a lot of the bad history, it comes, it gets debunked, nobody reads the debunking, and then it comes back. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It, it is... That's kind of the amazing thing. And I think nowhere else in the battlefield does bad history, we cannot get rid of it, than East Cav. Yeah. It, and it's rem remarkable because a lot of really great historians have done a great job of dispelling this mm -hmm. in, I mean, excruciating detail. Well, and yet here it still remains. Boy, yeah. And let's, uh, and I'm going to count to 10 so my Jimmies don't get rustled on any of this. But yeah, kind of working backwards, you know, and, and I've said before, we don't call people out on this show. I'm going to mention too, in particular, um, you know, uh, Philip Thomas Tucker, mm -hmm. who, of course, has written, again, this Not item. to be confused with Glenn Tucker. Not there are two Tuckers that have done work on the Battle of Gettysburg. Yeah, folks. not Glenn Tucker. P. We T. like Glenn Tucker. Well, we love Glenn Tucker, but he's dead, too. Yeah, he P. is. P.T. Tucker. Breaking news. P.T. Tucker, his, he, he's written a lot about this. I mean, I won't even pretend I've read all the books, but we know kind of how you it can. goes. There's not enough time in the day. Yeah, I mean, ne next week another one will be out. But before that, on a more serious vein, was Tom Carhart. Yeah. And that book in particular seems to have had staying power. Yeah, it does. Because yeah. now, now I addressed this in the Pickett's Charge book, to your point about, mm -hmm. you know, the bad history keeps coming back. I addressed this in the Pickett's Charge book, probably didn't make mm -hmm. much of a ripple, but over the years, having taken hundreds of people out there, mm. probably not thousands, because you don't get that kind of visitation at East Cavalry Field, time and time again, you try to impart mm. this message on people, and you just kind of wonder how much it does or doesn't sink in. Um, I will say, looking back over my guiding career, I do think people are getting better on this topic. Yeah. You know, you look at somebody like Eric Wittenberg, who mm -hmm. writes a lot on cavalry. Yep. Um, he's on the good history side. He's done, I think, a great job as anybody of dispel of trying to kind of yeah, I mean, hit I that down. I always tell people, if you want a good East Cavalry book, Eric's um, Protecting the Flanks is the best one out there or that. But I think, you know, with stuff like that, I have seen over the years a shift. When I first started guiding in 2003, I'd say to people, let's talk about why Stuart was here. And they would have the myth mm -hmm. very deeply ingrained. 2023, I might say to people, do we need to talk about why Stuart was here? And everybody go, or a lot of people will go, no, I get it. Mm -hmm. We don't need to do it. So I do think it's it's kind of working its way into the subconsciousness. But yeah, I know at the same time too, there's a lot of people that just can't let go of that old, yeah. old version. 
and we talked earlier in the episode about the veterans era. Mm-hmm. You know, this didn't start with Tucker. Right. This didn't start with Carhartt. This didn't start with Winston Churchill. This is a good example of one. Man, that, did you ever think you would say Tucker, Carhartt, and Churchill? In the same in sentence. In the same sentence. Yeah, You're welcome, right. folks. Only on the Battle of Gettysburg Only on the Battle of Gettysburg right? podcast. I wonder where Churchill would have gone for pizza. So going all the way back to the veterans era, Henry McClellan, mm-hmm. a staff officer of Stewart, William Brooke Rawl, an officer mm-hmm. on the Union side. Going back to the veterans era, it was guys like this wanting to give meaning yeah. to what they did at East Cavalry Field, wanting to give meaning to what they did, what their units did, mm-hmm. and the sacrifice of those units. Mm-hmm. They really started the idea that this was you know, the fight for the Union, the fight that changed the Battle of Gettysburg. Even from well-intentioned sentiments mm-hmm. comes bad history. And in, in some cases, one of the largest purveyors of bad history as it relates to this battle are the veterans themselves. Yeah. And now you're probably going, oh, well, wait a minute. He said, don't throw out what they say earlier, didn't he? Yes, I did. And, but I think what we have to understand is that these veterans had their own reasons for writing what they do. Whether it's conscious, subconscious, we don't know, you know, you don't know why you write something when you do. And what we also see is, yeah, they lost friends. They saw things that were horrific Mm -hmm. that they need to try to give some meaning to. And you know what? For that veteran to be able to sleep at night better by saying that, hey, we helped save the Union out near the low Dutch road on the afternoon of July 3rd, 1863. You know what? You were there. I wasn't. Mm -hmm. I will give you that grace. But I'll also, you know, begin to look at your count and take it for what it is. Yeah. But I yeah. but I think what we have to do is we're not saying that this is somehow malicious. It's not. I think it's it's human beings coming to grips with what they did in their life. And also one thing that people tend to want is to be remembered. Mm-hmm. They and especially those that didn't get a chance to live to be remembered. Yeah, right. And right. and I think that's where a lot of this comes from. So and and it's very easy to take an account written by a veteran. Mm-hmm. What better account? Would there be? And he you was see there. something like this. It's very you can see how it's very yep. easy to make that yep. that decision to include that. Once again, it comes back to just you gotta evaluate your sources. Yeah. yeah and yeah. and you know, in the early days, you didn't have access to all this stuff. No, you didn't. You couldn't sit at a little magic box in your house and Mm-mm. pull up digitized newspapers from all over the country mm-hmm. and you know, the hundreds and hundreds of books that maybe at that time had not yet been written on the Battle of Gettysburg. So in the early days you had limited sources. You went with what you and had. And think about, say, troops from Pennsylvania that were out there. Mm-hmm. Read Pennsylvania at Gettysburg. Mm-hmm. What are you going to read? You're going to read a lot about a lot of badass infantry fighting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you're in this book where all these guys have basically said, you, we won the battle. And you go, well, what about us? Yeah. You want to get part of that as mm-hmm. well. So, uh, But I think you're right. I mean, the, we just assume these people have sources just laying there i mean one thing i have learned from reading veterans writings after the war is that there's a lot of groupthink. yeah there's yeah. a lot of stuff just kind of getting passed on on and on and on with no real questioning of it you know well if if the colonel said that's what happened that's what happened yeah yeah all and right so or I met up with Eric at the, uh, you know, at the convention in Atlanta. And, yes. You know, we yeah. talked about the old days and we agreed this happened, you know, that sort of thing. And so we have to we have to keep that in mind. But I think, you know, really the biggest above all out, out there, we once again, Stuart had nothing to do with Pickett's mm-hmm. charge. Mm-hmm. It's that simple. Yeah. Yeah. It's that simple. Yeah. But of course, 
bad history dies hard. Yeah, it does. It does. And, you know, related to that, it was Greg who commanded the field mm-hmm. on the union side. Have to give him the credit for that. Um, people will try to discredit mm-hmm. Custer entirely and say Custer was only along for the ride. No, no, no. The mm-hmm. Michigan Brigade, led by Custer, mm-hmm. did the heaviest fighting on the Union side. Mm-hmm. So it's a great example of East Cavalry Field, like a lot of other parts of the field, being a team effort. But we tend to kind of isolate on the more colorful, flamboyant mm-hmm. guys. If you want to really look at it, it's really Greg versus Stewart at the command level. And a lot of the tactical mm-hmm. level, it's really Custer versus Wade Hampton. Yeah. And listeners of this show know we love Wade Hampton. We love some Wade Hampton. We love Wade Hampton. You know what? Coming hot. We need to do an episode at High Hampton sometime. You think they would let us record there? It's still there. Yeah, I know. You know, you want to make, make some phone calls? I think we or? should. I would love to, you know, maybe after we record, they can take us out with our Bowie knives. Yeah. We can hunt some bears. And, I'm thinking mint juleps you know, on the set kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, yeah. You know, we might have to, you know what? We're going to have to have our, uh, our scheduling department look into that. I can already hear it. Coming to you from High Hampton. In the hills of Western North Carolina. But if we beaten the hell out of East Cavalry I think Field? we have beaten this dead horse. Do you have anything no else pun you intended. want to Should we, Speaking of dead horses, should we at least touch on other cavalry action that's still going on that day? Yeah. We're well, to run long well you know, here. we obviously will have, there is fighting mm-hmm. southwest of Gettysburg on July 3rd, Battle of Fairfield. But you will also have on the opposite flank yeah. of the battle lines itself, South Cavalry Field, which I am sure there's some listeners going, <laughs> what? We know there's an East Cav, but what's the South Cav? What is this? Well, we haven't done we haven't done an episode yet on South Cav Field because the, there's been such bad blood amongst some of the historians yeah. about that over the years that our legal staff has not <laughs> properly prepared enough disclaimers yeah you know you know keep us out of trouble on that but uh yeah so long story short really some of the last significant mm-hmm. fighting at Gettysburg is a lot of the action at South Cav Field it's in the afternoon of July 3rd after Pickett is repul- mm-hmm. Pickett and Pettigrew are repulsed, so you cannot say Pickett's charge closes out right. the battle. A lot of the bad history there, again, you can argue back and forth whether this is really the vainglorious mm-hmm. kill cavalry assault that by Judson Kilpatrick that history usually makes it out to be. Uh, was it, in fact, ordered by Pleasanton, and was it even potentially originally conceived as a coordinated attack between the cavalry Mm -hmm. and the Union infantry on that flank. These are all topics that can be debated. Uh, There's the element of Farnsworth and Kilpatrick arguing over the orders. I think some of that can be dispelled and going right down to the idea that General Farnsworth committed suicide. Right. Um, you know, you know, rather than being captured by the the gothic foe of the Confederacy yeah. <laughs> uh, kind of thing. A lot of bad history at South Cavalry Field. Is there maybe a reason why cavalry fights seem to lend themselves to a lot of bad history? I think a lot of students of the war don't understand the role of cavalry, mm-hmm. how they actually fought, mm-hmm. how they actually conducted themselves. I would argue they don't know a lot about infantry either or artillery. It's amazing how much we discuss about these battles, yet many of us really don't fully know how these battles actually were fought. There is a method to the madness. I think part of it is it's so funny. I mean, if you would look for per capita, the most kind of 
jaunty figures, the most dashing yeah. figures of the world. You're finding it in your mounted forces. Join the cavalry. And that is not an American Civil War story, folks. Read about some of Napoleon's commanders in his era, you know, and others. It, it, it lends itself to that. You also run into someone like Judson Kilpatrick that most students of the war and of the battle really don't have a favorable appear, uh, view right. of Kilpatrick. He's really not liked at all. So that plays. It's so funny how often these very dislikable figures end up being the ones thrown and being kind of piled on with the most bad history. Isn't that? Yeah. Is it the Dan, should we call it the Dan Sickles theory? Dan Sickles report number two here. Yeah, you know, but I think that's part of it. You know, it brings up a valid point. Kilpatrick is not a likable figure to many Mm -hmm. people. So, Mm -hmm. of course, immediately, if you have a negative view of Judson Kilpatrick, it's going to take even more effort to try to to change that. Yeah. And in the story, you have this very dashing young officer, almost beseeching for his very life. Newly promoted. And here is Kilpatrick. No, you're a coward if you don't do it. You're a sissy if you don't do it. Well, we've all encountered people like Judson Kilpatrick. We don't like that guy. Mm -hmm. So it's, it lends itself to that. I think part of the reason why it's so misunderstood is that you have a very, you have a figure in Kilpatrick that people have not taken the time to actually study or to get to know. It's the sound bites. You're right. Yeah, it's, it goes back to sound bites. Right, and there's the guys. What I just did would make a great three-minute TikTok video. <laughs> exactly. But it's not it's, real history. Exactly. Coming soon on our Facebook page. I am not doing TikTok. Yeah, kind of thing. So that, the, um, that, that's, that's a hill too far. The um, You're right, and I think a lot of that comes from, as you said, guys that people don't like. Mm-hmm. If you don't like... Judson Kilpatrick, if you don't like Dan Sickles, mm-hmm. if you don't like George Custer, you will tend to not devote the time to mm-hmm. studying them to learn more about it. Or be objective with them. So you go with the sound bites. Mm-hmm. You go with the sound bites. Well, you know, I saw in that movie that Custer was mm-hmm. a damn fool. He was a damn fool because you don't like him enough to want to study mm-hmm. it. And Kilpatrick's a great example of that. Um, you know, again, there's, and again, you want to read the Wittenberg book. Uh, Gettysburg's Forgotten Cavalry yep. Actions, uh-huh. which covers South Cavalry Field and Fairfield um, on a lot of this. But, um, you know, there's been other theories thrown about mm-hmm. over the years, some of which uh, by colleagues of ours. But, you know, until mm-hmm. something else comes into print, you know, you got to go, you know, if you want to read more about it, that's what we've got. Um, and there is another part of the field. I mean, as as kind of isolated as East Cav yeah. is. Yeah. I mean, really, for all of our listeners. Honestly, ask yourself, have you ever been out on the South Calf Field on purpose? Driving up the Emmitsburg Road towards town does not count. It doesn't lend itself to easy visitation. Mm-hmm. It's hard to do a South Cav tour. Well, you look at something like Merritt Avenue. I yeah. mean, there's literally nowhere to park. Yeah. And, you know, which brings up another good point. People think of South Cavalry Field and they think of... Farnsworth. Yes, they don't think about Merritt at all. Other side of the Emmitsburg Road, there is an assault by Wesley mm-hmm. Merritt on, you know, what again would truly be the right flank of the Army of Northern Virginia. Think about if Merritt, if Merritt comes up the Emmitsburg Road and rolls up Longstreet's flank, mm-hmm. again, Longstreet now on the afternoon of July 3rd would have a whole different set of problems to be worried about. And and I think should note Wesley Merritt, if we want to have a John Buford report, mm-hmm. the, the, the prodigal son brigade, if you will, of John Buford, the Forgotten Brigade of Buford's division. The JNO Buford Report. We haven't done one of those. We in have a while. not, but there we go. This is these are the deep cuts you get on the Battle of Gettysburg podcast. 
students of Gettysburg are have have had, kind of had ingrained into them that by 1863, massed charges of mounted forces against infantry is as foolhardy as sending 13,000 men across a field. Right. My you God, know, how could it work? You can't do that. Now, this is the thing where I always say, and we, we stress why you should get beyond just Gettysburg. Mm-hmm. Wesley Merritt, yeah. a year and a half later, is going to see a lot of success mm-hmm. of Union-mounted forces crushing the flanks. Third Winchester, Cedar Creek, right. they they are the decisive blow mm-hmm. of the day. Including our boy and General our, Custer. And Custer's right yeah, in the yeah. midst of it. So I think we need to show that there is a shifting tactically of what's right, happening right. in the war. But for a lot of Gettysburg students, they're kind of ingrained. Then you look only, if you only look at the big round top Bushman Hill area, mm-hmm. you're going, holy crap, I can't even walk through here. How do yeah. I get a horse through here? Yeah. Well, you know, obviously the field looks different, things such as that. But I think we get a very incomplete view of it. Yeah. And and also, even with the idea of a Farnsworth suicide, you know, I don't know. If you're in immense pain and you know you're about to die... I could maybe see it, but the idea that somehow you're going to kill yourself so you're not captured. He's an officer. Yeah. He's not private Smith that's going to be going to Andersonville. Right, right, right. You know, he, he's they're going not, to... They're not waterboarding him if he's no. captured. So, I mean, that, that was one even on its sort of surface of it. Yeah, it was ridiculous. And also, of course, in the 19th century, and especially in Victorian culture, there is a very strong societal stigma against killing yourself. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, and so... It's one of those things. It's kind of it's there. I don't put much credence to it. It just it it doesn't fit the story. Yeah, it doesn't fit the circumstances, and it doesn't fit the era of the time. I think I think some scholarship. I mean, there was there was the notion of keep the last bullet for yourself. You know, that certainly was was uh, accepted on the plains. If you're out on the plains against Comanches, again, that's kind of why I made the joke before about this Gothic foe sort of thing. You know, yeah, um, they're Confederates, not Comanches. Yeah, you know, <laughs> you know trade trade coffee and tobacco kind of thing. But um, you know, I think some scholarship has been proposed that no, not only was it not Farnsworth, but it was probably an officer by the name of Cushman who we can probably demonstrate was very jauntily dressed that day and might have been confused for Farnsworth. But even that guy didn't kill himself. Right. So, (laughs) you know, um, again, and again, this isn't, this isn't going to turn into the South Cavalry field episode, which you know what? We really should do. Lawyers be damned. Yeah, we should really do it. We're going to need to do it. Uh, But, you know, bottom line, bottom line being South Cavalry field, it's a good example. You have, you know, a handful of accounts, some of them in battles and leaders and mm-hmm. some of these early accounts, they really form the basis of what we think we know about South Cavalry Field. And a lot of that, you know, has been or should be dismantled mm-hmm. because there's a ton of bad history there. And I think, you know, if anything, putting it in its proper context yeah. for, for a lot of visitors, because it's, you know, there were plans at times for expanded visitation mm-hmm. out there. Kilpatrick I mean, there were going to be park and, roads. Mm-hmm. There was going to be South Cavalry. I mean, there was a lot yeah. of plans just for whatever reason didn't happen. But I think what it shows is that, you know, all joking aside, there's a lot on July 3rd happening. Well, that's why. And maybe, maybe the biggest bad history of all for July 3rd is that it's just Pickett's charge. Well, that, you know, that I think this brings us full circle, right? We started, we started by saying this idea that, oh, people kind of blow, because there are a lot of people I know who kind of dismiss July 3rd. Oh, the third day is boring. Mm -hmm. I'm a first day guy. I'm a second Mm -hmm. day guy. You know what? And I'll say, 
I'm not a guy for any day. Mm -hmm. I like all, I'm interested in Mm -hmm. not only all three days, but the lead up and the aftermath. I'm a Gettysburg campaign guy. And if you're not a Gettysburg campaign person, guy or female, sorry, I identify as a guy. But if you're not a Gettysburg campaign person, try it. Mm -hmm. It's fun. It's much more enriching than focusing on a day. And back to your point, third day, there's a lot to unpack on July 3rd. We've taken you all around the field. We just touched on Fairfield uh, sort of thing. How about the aftermath? Was there stuff in the aftermath that we want to cover? Well, I think the biggest, as we look at Gettysburg and and kind of, for lack of a better term, beyond, mm-hmm. which is something that, you know, I don't think we get enough credit for. What's that? For pushing this concept of there's more than just Gettysburg, this idea of Gettysburg and beyond, which we have done a number <laughs> of those tours in, in through the years. We're seeing that term floated around a little bit more. We want to say, hey, you know, it's we, important that we see beyond just what happens on on what really we would consider the national park property today. Yeah. And since you brought it up, we have more of those scheduled in 2023. And I'm not saying this to pimp or shill are beyond Gettysburg tours. But what I am saying it is, you know, for the folks who think, are you still doing anything? Oh yeah, yeah, we are. And we're doing it in some pretty cool places coming up. Busier than we've ever been kind of thing. But anyways, any bad history we want to cover? The the biggest bad history that I would see from kind of July 4th to the end of the campaign, Mm -hmm. Meade does not pursue. I figured that's where we would go. It's got to be. And also, you know, obviously we've been in a mead renaissance mm-hmm. lately. Our our good friend, Kent Masterson-Brown, has really been spearheading that, mm-hmm. leading the charge, and has done some great, great work. And of course, if you want to hear more, we had a, he was very gracious to, to spend time with us a few months back. But I think, you know, it's not even that mead pursues slowly. It's almost this idea of mead never pursues. It's yeah. almost like yeah. you have... I don't know how this has happened, but you have confused George Meade with George McClellan mm. after Antietam. Yeah. You know, and and over time, I think some of that McClellanism has somehow seeped into the Meade story. Yeah. And we don't we can't separate the two. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, the evidence is very clear, folks. Meade pursues. <laughs> yeah. Um, now, the decisions he makes when he gets closer to Lee's army, that, that can be debated. But what cannot be debated is that Meade pursues Lee aggressively to, I think, really the best ability of his army. I, I cannot see I at so times too. in that pursuit where I go, man, you left that on the field. Yeah. I yeah. think he's using everything he has in his power. An army that, you know, we think, we always talk about in the retreat too. Mm-hmm how bad of shape Lee's army is. Yeah. You know, the image we have of the retreat is Confederates slogging through knee-high mud, you know, yeah. eating, you know, bread that's fallen off the ground from dead and wounded soldiers. Green and, apples. You know, just ugly. It's ugly na- aspect yeah. of war. Well, Union troops are marching through mud, too. Well, I think- you know, mud is not, you know, the, the same challenges Confederates had trying to get to the Potomac are the same challenges that Meade's army has getting to the Potomac as well. And we kind of sometimes forget that. I think maybe the best thing that Kent's Meade book did, and we talked about it in the Meade episode, so I won't belabor it, but I think the best thing he did in his book was opening your eyes to what was really an unfavorable supply situation for the Army of the Potomac. We always think, well, they're in favorable country. Mm -hmm. Okay, they got their supply line back you know, down in Westminster, Mm -hmm. okay, let's move on kind of thing. But really, he did a nice Mm -hmm. job demonstrating how worn out and ragged Mm -hmm. and in many cases, ill-supplied the Mm -hmm. Army of the Potomac was. So yeah, I think he does a good job with that. I think think back to the 
bad history component of Meade doesn't pursue. I mean, we all know, we all know this has its genesis going all the way back to, you know, criticism from uh, Mm -hmm. Lincoln, Mm -hmm. criticism from the Joint Committee of the Conduct Mm -hmm. of the War. I always say, if you read the Joint Committee Conduct of the War on the Gettysburg campaign, again, don't just focus on an aspect, Mm -hmm. but read the whole campaign. What has been remembered is the Meade-Sickles stuff. I believe, though, the testimony that they take, the questions they ask, the position they form afterwards is equally or more, what's the word I'm looking for? Bigger, more Mm -hmm. of it. There's more of it related to the retreat and Williamsport Mm -hmm. than the Meade-Sickles stuff. Absolutely. And, you know, you see it in the questions you know, General Butterfield, do you think we should have pursued, you know, General Warren, do you think we should have, General Hancock, everybody gets asked about it. And if you look at the criticism that the Joint Committee issues against Meade, they really focus on what they felt was an opportunity lost Mm -hmm. to prevent Lee from getting away. So the point is, this goes back to the earliest days of the post-war. It is not just Sickles, which, again, I think a lot of bad history makes it sound like, oh, it's all Sickles talking to Lincoln. No, there's a huge political undercurrent here. If you haven't read the Joint Committee testimony, you should, Mm -hmm. sort of thing. But, yeah, I mean, I think think in this Meade renaissance that we're in, There's clearly a number of battles and skirmishes going all the way back to the Potomac, Mm -hmm. Hagerstown, you know, and and you could go on with all of that stuff. The fact that Meade, quote unquote, didn't pursue and let Lee get away fits into a nice, tidy narrative. Mm -hmm. And part of that narrative is Lincoln needed Grant. Yes, he does. Grant is going to be the only man who can get the job done. And it it, it kind of fits into that narrative. And I think what's very interesting, if you actually look at even Meade, you know, I do a lot of research and tours in the Shenandoah Valley. Mm -hmm. And after the initial summer faltering of union plans in the Shenandoah in 1864 me is mentioned as a potential solution of rather than maybe Phil Sheraton, it would have been George Meade. In fact, Grant actually promotes that idea. The problem you have is the Lincoln administration says, well, if we move him out to the Shenandoah Valley, it's going to look like a demotion. It's not going to look good politically. I can't do it. Can't do it. Uh, you know, I mean, I would say it's a better solution than one of other Grant's picks, William B. Franklin. <laughs> yeah. There's one, you know, let's not always assume Grant had the best mind for talent ever. But, yeah. yeah. But, but what I see, but what you see is that these things linger. And I think sometimes we have a tendency to think that these guys were only consumed by that. I mean, Meade had an army to run. Mm-hmm. He also had to go to Capitol Hill and defend his actions. Right, right, right. And everything that comes into that. So it was, and also he's living that there. We live after the fact. You know, yeah. we have the ability of hindsight to judge them. But I think yeah. Meade, you know, it, it it definitely is one that kind of you have to get to the point where Meade, where Grant comes in to save the day. Oh, yeah. And yeah. and I will I will make the argument. Grant is by far the greatest general of the American Civil War. I, I don't think that's really even a debate. Oh, you'd be surprised. Well, you know, personally, yeah. I agree with you. Yeah, but I mean, you know, out there but, you know, I'm sure, so, uh, you know, but but yeah. what the but, butcher, what my argument is, is. The Union Army here at Gettysburg from July 1st through 3rd laid the foundation to eventually get Grant. 
and that can't be overlooked at yeah. times. And, and, and Meade, I think, plays a critical role yeah. in that. I mean, as I say, when on June 28th, the last commander that the Army of the Potomac is ever going to know You're right. Takes is command. selected. Yeah. And, now, of course, now I know somebody's going, well, what about that one couple-day period when John Park took command of the Army of the Potomac temporarily? I'm just using that because I like John Park, Ninth Corps uh, guy. But, uh, but, you know, I mean, I think what we see is it, it fits that kind of tiny, that that tidy narrative that we crave mm-hmm. let's not let's not give everything away for the ninth core episode which is coming up soon you know what i would that would be fun would just be. a random ninth core episode whoever talks about the ninth core you know what the 19th core for yeah. that matter the one, the one area where though people are getting better to kind of tie this into a bow sort of thing the one area where i do think people are getting better the narrative always used to be oh yeah Meade got fired and got replaced by Grant. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, you laugh, but 20 years yeah, ago. No. And, I and, still hear that. Yeah. I still hear and, it out there. And you, you know? still hear it, but I feel like it is getting better. Yeah, it's getting, it's getting better, better, but you still hear it. It's yeah. still there. Yeah. Um, so so narratives are changing. I don't I don't buy into this notion, and, and I don't think you do either, that the Gettysburg historiography has been all anti-Meade. No. I mean, I hear that a lot. You know, oh, finally somebody's doing a favorable assessment of Meade. No, there's <laughs> been a lot of favorable assessments of Meade, but I do think it's becoming more pro-Meade. So at least stuff like Meade got fired, you know, Grant replaced Meade, stuff like that, mm-hmm. it, it'll never disappear from the narrative because it's too deeply ingrained. Right. But I do think it's getting better. So, yeah. Eric, there is hope for tomorrow. There is. And, and, and in all seriousness, why have things turned around? Because really good historians have put their effort to debunking this yeah there's all- and being out there doing the work that it takes to do it always gonna and, fight the bad historians yeah um, and and sometimes being a bad historian is easier oh it's you, much easier you can say just something colorful and dramatic mm-hmm. and get a laugh out of the mm-hmm. crowd and people say oh well you know so i, I heard it's so-and-so's campfire that that's mm-hmm. what happened yep. you know or, or so-and-so's youtube video and it's it's just easier than actually doing good work but well, that's true. That, in, that's true in life. Yeah. Not his. Not just history. So I guess that could be our life lesson to end yeah. bad history on an uplifting note. Yeah, I think do good know, work, people. Yeah, do the work. And I will stress, you will never understand this battle if you do not understand the historiography of this battle. Mm. And it's so funny for us. A lot of this bad history, when we see it coming back, we go, "Oh, it's back again." For a lot of people, go. They have no idea that ever left or came back. Oh, yeah, right, or right. when we see, you know, attempts to save Meade, mm-hmm. attempts to save Longstreet. Mm-hmm. Folks, Longstreet's been saved since like 1987. Exactly. exactly. It's all right. We're, we're good. I would argue you he's know? been saved since the Killer Angels. Yeah. I mean, you know, so we see that, but I think it's important that it's not just what happened here on this battlefield, yeah. but how different generations, how participants have, been, yeah. have, been, have viewed it after the fact. That's what shapes what we know today. Well, and for better or worse... A lot of the future historiography is going to be social media and videos and that sort. I mean, how often do you see something like, hey, I don't know if this has ever been discussed before, but do you think Longstreet got a bad rap? Um, Yeah, it's been discussed once or twice. Now, again... The good part of that is you presume that's somebody new right. coming into mm-hmm. the field, and that's good. Newcomers, we need you. Yeah. We want you into the field. The bad part of that is, hey, has this ever been discussed before? Kind of tells you they haven't done any homework whatsoever. Right. You know, uh, you know, read. Understand the historiography. Understand what came before you before you just kind of start throwing out these, hey, I bet nobody's ever talked about this before statement. Chances are everything's been talked about. 
It's the interpretation that changes over time. It's never been easier to study the Civil War than now. It really is. So I think that's where I kind of come down. There's no excuse for bad history. The information is out there. The information's there. Yep. You the gotta, resources are there. You got to take you the know, time to get it. You bet, and I think that's what it comes down to. And so I think, as you said, we've kind of put a bow on this episode. You know, we want to thank you all certainly for your continued support. Yeah. Uh, once again, you know, feel free to, to, if you can, give us a review on the podcast platform your, of your choice. Follow us on social media. Give us a media. good review. Yeah, it's give a us good a good review, review certainly. Yeah, if you're yeah, do yeah. It. Some you of know. this stuff. It's like, come on. Really? Stop interrupting me. Yeah. Stop interrupting me. Yeah, exactly. Stop interrupting right. me. Exactly. Yeah. Right. So, you know what? In all seriousness, though, you know. Don't we, be so angry. We, oh, I'm sorry. I interrupted oh, you. Oh, you're interrupting me. Telling me I'm angry. angry now you're making I'm, me angry by interrupting you're me. You're angry and I'm an interrupter. Well, but other than that, we get great reviews. Yes. So, but in all seriousness, you know, if you can take the time to do that, we greatly appreciate it. Follow us on social media. Uh, be sure to check out our new YouTube channel that yeah. Jim talked about. We're really trying to promote that. We think it's a great way to stay in touch with you all and give you some really good you know some information out there of things we've done and some of our friends as well yeah we got some cool a lot of cool events coming up in 2023 regardless of when you actually listen to this episode events youtube podcasts tours beyond gettysburg we got a lot we got a lot going on don't listen to any oh i heard they don't do anything anymore that's ridiculous frankly it's slanderous you know what i'm gonna say i'm gonna say it right now the people that say we don't do anything mm -hmm. can't do what we do Ooh, it's that simple thrown. getting angry it's that simple you're getting do i'm I need not to, angry do i need to interrupt you at this point it's just hey it's the reality Mm. And we we thank you for your continued support. We hope to see you on some of these programs throughout the year. So with that, I think we'll put a bow on this episode, and we will see you all next time. Yeah, signing off from Gettys Gear in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, the content capital of the world. Take care, everybody. And don't forget to get all your favorite Battle of Gettysburg podcast swag at our website, the Battle of Gettysburg podcast dot com.